Hello everyone, this is Berkay from D2C Wheel. D2C Wheel is an online community where we talk about direct-to-consumer brands, technologies and everything in the D2C space. Before jumping into the episode, I just wanted to tell you more about the weekly newsletter we have just started. By subscribing to it on d2cwills.com newsletter, you'll have an access to exclusive tips from successful D2C entrepreneurs, weekly insights from the industry and a vibrant community of D2C experts. You can find the link for subscribing to it in the description of this episode. So hi, everyone. Today, we are together with Jake Madoff, the head of growth marketing for New York-based full subscription direct-to-consumer brands, Every Table. So it's a great pleasure to have you on our studio, Jake. Uh, how are you doing? It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm doing well here in New York on a cold a cold day, but, but doing well. Yeah, perfect. I mean, it's always cold, rainy, but always romantic in New York, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> right. So Jake, I will go ahead and do a very quick start. So tell me more about yourself, your work. I guess you do uh, freelancing, consulting and everything. So tell us more about your career. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, I've been doing uh, freelance for about eight years now. Um, I started with a startup of my own uh, back in around 2014 called TradeMade. Um, that was an iOS, iOS-based uh, barter and trade application. So users could upload goods and services, and uh, you could basically trade with people in your area. So if, if you had some textbooks mm-hmm. and you were a tutor, you could kind of like swap those. Uh, it was a really interesting app to work on. We uh, entered into a few entrepreneurship competitions with a mm-hmm. co-founder, um, and uh, we got some funding for it. But I realized in that in that venture that growth marketing is integral to scale a company. <laughs> it was yeah, kind of just yeah. starting in, in that time. Um, and Meta, Facebook, Instagram ads were, were kind of newer-ish. And mm-hmm. uh, mostly it was SEO and Google ads. If you were to, kind of, you, you could be doing paid social, but it was still relatively new. Um, so I, I had basically just taught myself those skills, paid social, paid search, SEO, and CRO, um, basically out of survival. Uh, and then from there, worked worked on, on developing those skills with TradeMade, and then moved on to Bespoke Post, um, larger company, scaled from about 300K in monthly spend to all the way up to about just under 2 million a month in spend, uh, running wow. across a number of channels. I, I like to say wow. whenever I kind of talk with freelance clients that if there's a channel that you can advertise on, I probably advertised on it. <laughs> we were yeah. super scrappy. Um, I mean, we, we advertised on, you know, uh, larger platforms, of course, like Meta, Google, YouTube, but also smaller ones like uh, Outbrain, Taboola, uh, Quora, Reddit. Uh, I mean, we really did try try the gambit. Um, but all that while, I was working on uh, freelance and kind of doing projects on the side. So just over time, that, that grew. And I really enjoyed working with other businesses where the problems are unique. Uh, I'm, I'm getting a, a wider array of solutions um, and just learning about new businesses and also just kind of being more tactical uh, where every business has a slightly different goal. So it just kind of helps me build out my my framework and also just diversity of skill set by working with so many brands. And, and in my freelance career, I've worked with uh, large names as well, um, like okay. on nutrition and Jean Doucet, um, Hems and Hers, Home Chef, um, yeah. subcontracting through agencies. But uh, I really like working with small business owners as well and helping them grow. And now, now I'm working with Evertable. Yeah, so now you're working with Evertable. Tell us more about it. Yeah, um, Evertable is, is incredible. Um, I'm about four months in there, um, and the the company is is great. It's a mission based company. Um, their core mission is kind of delivering affordable, healthy food. So they have mm-hmm. locations in kind of the LA area and, and New York City area, 
Um, they have a, a large array of menu items that you can choose from. Uh, mm-hmm. Their kind of value props are not only that they're super affordable, but that the, mo- the food is really healthy. It's made from scratch in their locations. Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of hitting this niche of kind of like prepared meals where it's really grab and go. So you, you kind of get the best part of all these different subscription boxes, which there are a lot of, where they hit all those marks. It's convenient, it's affordable, um, and, and it's healthy. Um, and that's, yeah. Yeah, I understand. Uh, well, I guess these days subscription business is a bit tricky, right? Because I have this news item in front of me on my like second screen. It says just like, I guess, last month's Blue Apron, which is also a yep. based uh, DC subscription food business. I guess they announced their sales for $103 million, which seems high, but compared to their overall over time pick $3 billion, like I guess, I guess they dropped in value by 97% or something. So yeah. these days, like market conditions hard, like inflation is hitting hard and subscription businesses are going through tough times in it. So what is the environment like for subscription businesses out there? Yeah, I would say generally for subscription, subscription still, I think, is is the preferable model. So mm-hmm. if you just think of like standard e-commerce versus subscription, um, if anything, I'm seeing more businesses that are standard e-commerce trying to make their model more subscription. Um, uh-huh. You know, think of, let's say, the Amazon subscribe and save model where they have products on their site. Maybe they have uh, beauty products or provisions, but they're adding in an option like subscribe and save, where if you subscribe to a cadence, you get a certain savings. So I'm, I'm seeing more businesses move over to that uh, just because it's recurring revenue. It's easier to model. You're, you have more flexibility with your LTV and CAC if you're a subscription. With food specifically, I think. Blue Apron is, is a special case where they just grew so quickly. And I, and I don't think they had you know, a moat. I don't think they had a, a clear, unique selling prop. They, they kind of just are similar to other ones. They're, it's not necessarily that they're super healthy. It's not that they're super convenient. It's just kind of a, a general food subscription. And I think mm-hmm. you need to kind of really find your, your niche and your unique selling props if, if you're doing food subscription. Um, mm-hmm. And every table too, they, they have uh, actual like, storefronts too. So you can like grab yeah. and go in their storefronts in LA and New York. Um, so they, they kind of have both and it's really helping to provide that, that diversity of offering for customers. Yeah, I understand. And how many, like how many of those storefront, uh, storefronts are present in the United States in general? Um, it's a good question. I'm not certain on the total count. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, but it's, it's, I'd say that they have more storefronts in LA and than a few in New York. New York City. I understand. I understand. Uh, but it's exclusively in LA and New York, right? For That's right. Yeah. As of right now. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Uh, so, Jake, like moving more towards your growth efforts. So, who is your target market? I mean, what sort of um, target market are you aiming to hit? Yeah, um, really anyone that is looking for a healthy alternative uh, for food that is on the go. So, imagine uh, in terms of like demographics, wide age range uh-huh. there, um, really anyone that's kind of looking for food that's you know, they, they could be commuting to work, they could be going to office, they could be remote workers, um, but mm-hmm. really, and, and even uh, you could have, it's great for, you know, single workers, but also families. We have what's called like a family meal, which is mm-hmm. a, a sizable amount of food for a family, but that's affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, so the demographic appeal is, is really wide. Um, I, I'd say our target is someone that is looking for that convenience and that kind of more on the go nature and looking to uh, save money on food while, while being healthy. Um, mm-hmm. and, and has maybe been a bit hesitant to make that switch to healthier eating because mm-hmm. of the cost associated with it, or maybe 
know, it's not as convenient because there aren't locations there, but um, it's trying to, to help bring those people in and saying, hey, you know, healthy food can be affordable. Yeah, I understand. But like, as far as I understand, like you are sort of appealing to large markets, right? And right. large markets in terms of demographic, as you were saying, consist of many, many different layers, many, many different groups of people. So how do you sort of differentiate your marketing messaging, you know, communication style towards those different groups? Yeah, for sure. It's been uh, pretty interesting running. So whenever I, I work on an account, creative uh, A-B testing is super important. Yeah. So um, we've done a number of A-B testing on creatives and it's it's been really enlightening to see what has performed well. Yeah. So for us, the way we kind of appeal to different people is we have uh, kind of generally two categories of creative that perform well. Uh, One are close up kind of macro shots of food. Um, mm, macro think, shots, okay. Yeah, like show, like we, we like to say that there's a lot you can do in talking about the quality of your food, but mm. a user may only really understand the quality if you show it. And the way mm -hmm. you show your quality of your food is by really doing those close crops, mm -hmm. um, you know, zooming into the food, showing it on a plate. That works really well. And then we have, you know, headlines, overlays and yeah. um, various value props on top of that media. The, the second style are comparison ads where, mm -hmm. you know, we'll do a comparison between every table in Trader Joe's mm -hmm. um, or every table in Chipotle or every table in just grocery shopping generally. Mm -hmm. um, and those are really helpful because those comparisons help to educate the user on this is why every table could be a better option for you. And we kind of break it down into those value props. But right now our creative is kind of split. We, we work with some content creators. So we have UGC mm -hmm. uh, creative that is kind of following along those guidelines that I mentioned. And also we have image creative uh, and both are using that kind of like comparison model with those macro shots. Yeah. I understand. I understand. So uh, you're saying the content is still the king, right? Do you are sort Absolutely. of, yeah, you are sort of creating different levels of content for different target groups and you were doing A-B testing. And do you have a specific example where, I don't know, a funny story, maybe if A-B testing sort of show you different or unexpected results? Yeah, I would say, um, so we had some creative that was uh, um, like, I, an interesting one could be including price or not including price. Mm. So a lot of brands in ad creative, you usually don't see price referenced in the actual ad creative. You yeah. usually see it only on the PDP. So once you click through, yeah. then you see the price. Yeah. Um, you see that in a lot of apparel-based apparel products, food-based products, where sure. it's it's kind of taboo to put the price right up front in the ad creator yeah. or in the ad copy. With us, it's actually the inverse. <laughs> yeah. uh, we ran tests where we include price callouts on the ad creative. Um, and because affordability is such a big value prop of ours, when we include price callouts and show the abundance of food, all the food that you get for that price, that's actually a really powerful messaging technique for our creative. So that was kind of a bit counter to where general practice is you don't put pricing or you don't focus on price in ad creative. If you look at our creative, if you go to Facebook ad library and look at our ad creative, you'll see mm -hmm. that we, we we try to mention it. You know, we don't we don't hide away from it. Um, and that was, that was great. Yeah, perfect. So you found your own way. So you mentioned Facebook. Yeah. Uh, so you're on Meta, obviously, I guess. That's right. And what sort of other social media platforms or platforms in general do you use? Yeah, we're on um, Google, Search, YouTube, Meta, and TikTok right now. TikTok, okay. Um, in terms of the ranking of those by volume, mm. Google is our largest. A close second is Meta, mm. uh, followed by TikTok. Um, and mostly our, our YouTube spend is under the umbrella of Performance Max with mm. a bit of dedicated retargeting for YouTube. We're not doing any type of demand gen or 
uh, you know, a, a broader prospecting campaign on YouTube. Yeah. I understand. I understand. Uh, so I, I guess Google Meta, okay, TikTok and YouTube. So I was going to ask you about your like Google ads because today I saw a tweet from who knows who. I, I saw a tweet on Twitter. Like there was this guy talking about Google is probably like the biggest tax collector on the DTC space because in terms of revenue, in terms of conversion, it doesn't really bring much, but it is the highest on the payroll. So what do you think about that? Is it correct for your case? <laughs> no, I mean, for us, it really <laughs> depends on the business. Uh, and also not yeah. only depends on the business, it, it depends on you know the person managing the campaigns. Yeah. Um, in our case, uh, we, we, do our, we do spend a bit more on Google as kind of our top spending channel. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I would say maybe if, if you know, I, I could see all that, all that, that, that person's account and see, you know, <laughs> yeah. why, why are they missing performance goals? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I understand. Uh, so like, I guess my question now would be then what are your strategies for a successful Google campaign? So I guess it's yeah. working for you. What are your strategies there? Yeah. Great question. So, um, again, it depends on like on the business that I'm working with for, for every table where it's kind of more of the, the, uh, you know, D2C model, um, mm and driving uh, purchases, e-com purchases, but also some in-store pickup. Um, generally speaking, I do, I, I'll get somewhat technical here, but um, I do a, usually a one-to-one campaign to aggregate ratio. Mm-hmm. So unlike on, on Meta, where you can have one campaign, one large prospecting campaign, and have you know five to 10 ad sets within that one campaign, mm-hmm. um, and you can control the budget within, mm-hmm. in, at yeah. the ad set level on Meta, on Google, I, even when you do smart bidding, I, I don't think Google does a good job at distributing budget across those ad groups. Mm. So I will typically, if I'm doing, you know, if I research, do keyword research and I find 10 different keyword themes, that means I, I may do 10 different campaigns on Google search campaigns in this case with one ad group in each where one ad group is defined by one keyword theme. So this way I have more control over the budget because on Google you have to uh, allocate budget at the campaign level. You can't do it at the aggregate ratio at the aggregate level. And then also I can have better adjustments of my bid to budget ratios. Um, mm. That's kind of a key learning I have with Google, but of course too, outside of campaign structure, which kind of that falls under, uh, for keyword research, that's really important. Um, I use not only Google's internal tool where I'll work, I'll work with a Google rep. Google mm. just as a, almost like a, a pro tip, Google has, if you work with a rep, they have their own internal keyword tool. And then you know mm. us as marketers, we can use things like you know, SEMrush or Google yeah. Keyword Planner. Yeah. But their internal tool is even more powerful. It's not only gives you a wider array of keywords, but it also gives you breakdowns. Like it'll categorize the keywords uh, using their AI, which allows for a lot more robust keyword uh, idea generation. Um, so when I do that, that's really important where I'll have like just a sheet of keywords and I'll organize them into those keyword themes. Yeah. Um, and then generally too, I'd say outside of you know keyword targeting and campaign structure, uh, Performance Max has been a really great campaign type on Google. Mm-hmm. Um, Performance Max has been super powerful. I think it's it's really good at abiding by the bid strategy that you give it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I'm having a lot of success with that. I would say Demand Gen, their newest campaign no, type, isn't quite there yet. Yeah, yeah. why is that? Um, I, I think it's it's still very new. It's still in beta, so you still have to kind of request the Demand Gen campaign to be added to your account. The Demand Gen campaign runs across Discovery and YouTube. It's yeah. Google's way of you know trying to compete with paid social in a way. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I just don't think it's there yet. It's very good at you know getting impressions, but it's not really there yet at, at finding efficient conversions. So if your objective is 
you know, just impressions and doing a, a big impression based campaign, I would say, you know, do the van gen, mm -hmm. but for an efficient play where you're trying to get, you know, an efficient cost for purchase, I, I would recommend van gen. Yeah. I understand, but like, did you already give that a big try? I mean, how long did you use that demand gen campaigns? But they're pretty new, right? Like only a couple months. Yeah. Um, the longest time we had it run, I mean, I turned it off. <laughs> yeah. The longest it was running was just under three months. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, it was at, it was at a pretty sizable. It was like a couple hundred bucks a day, um, but it just relative to search and Pmax, it was just really underperforming. Yeah. I understand. Okay, so now I guess coming back to the social media side. So you say your biggest channel is Meta after Google. Yeah. So yeah. So what are your strategies there in a brief? Yeah, um, I'd say with Meta, um, Meta pretty similarly where we're trying uh, usually broader campaigns. Mm -hmm. So on Meta, I've had more success as of late with two different ad set types. One is broad mm -hmm. and one is lookalike stacked where I'll stack up audiences. Um, mm -hmm. I usually wouldn't do that. Usually I would separate out, you know, if I have a lookalike based on the customer list or a lookalike based on social engagers, I'd usually separate that out. I actually found more success combining them um, into one ad set. I basically call it stacked or you know stacked list. The reason for that, as I've discovered in talking with uh, a friend who's a product manager at Meta, is mm -hmm. their turn. So with like Advantage Plus, for example, when they launched their yeah. that, that type of campaign build, they're almost using in the same way when you build a performance max campaign and you upload um, targeting signals to the asset group, where mm -hmm. you just give it a ton of information, and then Google's like, okay. Thank you for giving me all this information. I will find the right users based on this, on these uh, signals yeah, that you gave yeah, me. Yeah. Meta is kind of similar where yeah. if you give it more information and just yeah. give it multiple lists, I think it has a better job trying to find patterns between those lists and then, you know, serve to those people versus just kind of separating it out. So that's been really powerful from a targeting standpoint. From a creative standpoint, um, I'd say like, you know, refreshing creative at a high velocity is, is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, and that depends on your budget. If you're spending more, you may want to do that more frequently. Um, and if you're spending less, you can you know, maybe do that every three to four weeks. Um, but Meta also just released in, the, in a deck uh, an article that was very interesting that a Meta rep just gave a presentation on. Um, it was basically saying, how does Meta see a different ad? So like mm -hmm. what registers as a net new creative in the auction algorithm? Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to see because Meta is pretty, you know, it, it's smart, obviously, but if you show it, an image of someone wearing a pair of shoes and then mm. another person wearing a pair of shoes and the kind of crop is the same, generally speaking, mm. yeah. it may read it as the same asset. So you're like, Ooh. you'll probably have to add a, add a headline overlay on top of it or change the perspective or change the background setting. Maybe if one person's putting on that pair of shoes in the living room, maybe have them doing it on a sidewalk and then that'll register as a new asset. Um, but those two things, you know, stacking audiences and, and uh, doing high velocity creative tests have been really important. I understand. So, the, uh, like, I guess a couple of months ago, I was talking to a DTC, a, an apparel DTC, and the mm -hmm. founder told me that he's actually, he's actually using Pinterest, which I guess makes more sense for the apparel businesses, to create awareness. And since you do have to connect with your customers in, I don't know, five, six, seven touch points, she is using the data she's getting from Pinterest to feed the meta algorithm. So that, as you were mm -hmm. saying, uh, the meta algorithm is working, I guess, better and better with the data you provide there. So, like, what sort of data, I think my question would be, what sort of data you're using to feed your meta ads? Yeah. Um, usually I'm building lookalike audiences on four general categories, and that kind of really helps to, to fill in that targeting. One is just a broad 10% lookalike on visitors. Mm -hmm. um, that has done 
uh, like I'm using this in, in the stacked uh, context. Mm-hmm. Then I'll pair that with usually a lookalike on IG or Instagram or Facebook followers. Uh-huh. So I'll build a lookalike on those. And then I have usually, if you export a customer list, you can mm-hmm. then do a high value customer list. So basically take the top 50% of those customers based on revenue contributed, mm-hmm. build a lookalike just on those. Yeah. Um, and then you can also just do a total, a total lookalike. Um, but what that does is you get three different types of users. You get social users that follow you on social. You get broader mm-hmm. site visitors and you get high value purchasers. Yeah. So I think the, the reason that's worked well in stacking those together is it just gives it, you kind of give Facebook more signal to say, okay, thank you. I, I now understand these different categories of users and there's patterns between them. So I know where to find them, you know, more mm-hmm. broadly across, you know, pixel signals from other websites or even just, you know, generally on social based on those in platform signals. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Uh, so I guess it's great. So it's like you have these three groups, uh, highest uh, value purchasers. Yeah. So like, how do you differentiate them from the other people? You know, they like those people are the ones that are bringing the most revenue. Those people are the ones who do come to your website and subscribe and, you know, do purchases and, and you know, keep buying from your company, from your brand. Mm-hmm. So like, how do you differentiate them? How do you find them? How do you, you know, communicate with them? Yeah, I would say um, in terms of like community and, and engagement, you know, we, we acquire those users just mostly through paid acquisition. That's kind of our, our largest mm-hmm. acquisition channel is, is paid. Mm-hmm. Um, but how we kind of continually engage with those users is we have like a really talented uh, content team and community mm-hmm. team that is responding to comments, monitoring comments on, on our ads. Um, and there's also in kind of communication with our creator network where, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're, they're, it, it is sometimes important to, to like, monitor creative uh, or monitor comments on your creative. Um, I, I think meta does reward those with like higher quality scores. Um, mm, no. and, and we see that. And that, I think that has also helped kind of the longevity of some creative because it is important where just even as like social proof where sometimes um, you can, you know, launch a, an ad creative, launch it first as an engagement objective where you just mm. collect a lot of likes on it and engagements. Mm. And then you can move that same ad unit into a, a prospecting campaign um, and it will have all of those engagements that were acquired cheaply just from the engagement objective campaign. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, to your question, it's, it's uh, we, we have a, a team that, that helps and really does monitor engagement on yeah. social. That's yeah. Great. So like you mentioned that you have this creator network. So tell, yeah. tell me more about that. Yeah. Every table um, is, is great in this way where uh, they mm-hmm. have kind of like this creator community where mm-hmm. They've identified like a handful, they have like, you know, an application process, but they have a, a almost a directory of influencers and creators that we work with. Um, and they're really talented. They, uh, we give basically just general creative guidelines and they make creative based on what, uh, the, the, the guidelines that we, we provide. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fantastic. I mean, we, we work with generally between, you know, five and 10 content creators. Um, again, we have, you know, shout out to Tyler. Um, she's uh, managing those. Um, uh, those creators and it's great. Um, they, that I'd say too, just as a, even as a note that was pretty interesting with different styles of UGC with these content creators, um, a tool that was really helpful for our team. Um, I don't think I put this in, in as a tool that we use, but it's mm. called sub magic. Um, it's a, yeah, it's like a, um, so closed captioning is of course really important with UGC where you want to add that closed captioning. Yeah. Um, this tool does it with AI but it does it in like a stylized way. So it's not just, you know, adding in, 
you know, simple text-based closed captioning. It does mm. kind of like the word tracking where it like highlights certain words as you speak and puts that yeah. as like a, you know, a layer in the video. It does also, it does smart like emoji association. So mm. like you literally just put in your video and it generates closed captioning across it with stylized coloring, word tracking and throws an emoji. So like it looks yeah. super native and it's been a really powerful kind of amplifier to the existing creative yeah right like like for that purpose we're using a tool called opus pro like opus, opus pro. clips okay. i don't know if you ever heard of them but i'm like their rent ambassador i'm not getting paid yes. but i'm talking <laughs> about the tool everywhere i go on twitter on on my daily life everything because they're, they're also doing that they're also putting those emojis and they also started like using ai i guess to put yeah. uh stock videos in certain parts of the videos where the videos are associated with the same, what the person on that video is saying. So like I, I'm using that, it's also a great tool for those who are listening to this. The thing that I was actually really looking forward to ask you, because I was actually trying to, like planning to get some wisdom from you mm -hmm. in TikTok, in terms of yeah. TikTok, because I have no idea about what's going on on TikTok, because I, I don't understand. I have no idea. I, I cannot understand their data. I cannot understand their algorithm. But I, apparently it's a big thing and I have to learn that. So I was really looking forward to asking more about TikTok. And yeah. I, I saw that you're also on TikTok. So what are your TikTok strategies? I mean, what do you do better than others? And what are your yeah. quick practical tips? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I would say generally you can treat TikTok pretty similarly to any story or real-based ad sets you have on Meta. Um, I'd say the biggest difference between the targeting on Meta and TikTok is... TikTok does a lot better with one large interest group. If you just kind of select one large interest group versus mm. selecting multiple, where with Meta, you can select multiple interests and you can even do layered you know, interests where you can do conditionals yeah. like this yeah. group and in this group. TikTok, I, I found, is not, it's not very good at that yet. Um, you really just select a broader interest and you know, pair that against a broad, just no interest selection, and then see the difference in performance. Um, that's been really helpful. Also, with Meta... It's not, I've really never had success with a cost cap bid strategy. Mm -hmm. So with Meta, like if you put a cost cap, usually the, the ad set doesn't spend the budget. I find that it's just yeah. the lowest conversion bid strategy is a lot better than the bid cap. Mm -hmm. However, TikTok is actually quite good at that. <laughs> so, yeah, it spends um, like crazy, right? It does, yeah. So I actually find it's better to add a cost cap on TikTok and actually use that yeah. versus their lowest cost offering. Um, and, and yeah, that, that has helped. And then with Creative too, um, it's more important to like, whenever you're doing overlays, like, you know, whether it's closed captionings or animations or whatever it is, yeah. or screenshots, the safe zone is, is different on TikTok. Yeah. That's, that's really important um, yeah, um, versus you know, just a reel on, on Meta, for example. Um, but lastly, I'd say with TikTok too, the ad creative fatigues like after like 10 days or so, it's, it's fast. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. So what I do is I'll typically get, you know, if I get 10 pieces of creative, mm. all then publish, you know, two on, you know, let's say December 1st, two on December mm. 10th, two on December 20th. And I'll just do that big build then and schedule it out. So then they're mm. each just launching every week and I could just go in and check and then, you know, optimize it as data comes in. But I just know that they're publishing every week, basically. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Like, but, but one more question also would be like, do you also have this sort of imaginary limit on your videos that you do not do paid advertising with? What I'm saying really is that like, I sort of, I don't really understand this. I share videos on TikTok, right? And mm -hmm. we have a certain amount of followers. We have a certain amount of, I mean, audience we always get reached to. But each time when I put a video on TikTok, it seems like there is a limit where we cannot yeah. go beyond that limit. 
For now, for example, that number is, I don't know, 250, 300 for us at the moment. But regardless of what we are doing, we cannot go beyond that limit. I cannot really understand that. So are you also experiencing the same? Yeah, I would say with organic TikTok and as a way to like help kind of break that ceiling, you mm. can boost those posts, like run them as a Spark ad. And yeah. then what that helps with is uh, you can get like additional circulation, but also when the user comes and visits your feed, you're getting more users that saw your brand. So then they may come back. So yeah. you'll climb much faster than doing it organically. So mm. in other words, if you boost like every other post, you're mm. getting incremental gain just yeah, from boosting sure. it versus organic. So every next post you do organically should be a gain. And after a while, you can just stop boosting every other one. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it is hard if you don't have if you don't partner with like a big influencer. It's hard to kind yeah. of like get going. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Okay, so like you do bring people to your website from all of these platforms. So what are your strategies to first convert those people to actually be your customers, and second retain them afterwards? Because in a subscription based business model, retention is the name of the game, right? So what are your strategies there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, retention with every table is interesting because. Um, the website tool we're using currently, um, we're, we're doing some updates on it to try and improve that experience. Mm. And I'd say that's kind of the biggest opportunity we have is to increase our add to cart conversion rate and add to cart to purchase conversion rate. Mm. Um, that's kind of our, our biggest opportunity. But we run uh, in, in order to kind of, that's kind of on the kind of front top of funnel conversion rate side. Uh, in terms of retention, uh, we do dedicated campaigns to past purchasers where when we mm. launch a new meal, or if we do, you know, for example, now we're doing like a Thanksgiving meal, um, we will serve those dedicated users, those that created first to kind of keep them warm, keep them aware of new meals that we're launching. Um, and that helps to retain them um, because they, they kind of before anyone else kind of get first picks at the new meals that we're launching. Um, and that's been that's been really helpful. Um, but also just I'd say, you know, email marketing is really important, too, with retention where you're, you're not just, you know, you shouldn't be just sending them promotions like you should yeah. be actually sending content that's valuable. And I think that's why, too, there's been such a, a burgeoning of uh, newsletters. Like, I, I subscribe yeah. to so many newsletters, like Snacks, Daily Click, Exploding Topics. Like, there are so many that are just popping up. Um, and I think if brands can learn not to just, like, if they can do a bit of that and actually, like, provide almost educational content in their mm. email marketing, that helps with retention. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, we'll do emails that are kind of talking about the philosophy or the ingredients that are a bit more educational versus just here's a discount that we're running. You know, and that helps too. And like, do people also like to read about those stuff? Yeah, they do for sure. Yeah. I think with, with people who are interested in, you know, healthy food. Oh, they also want to learn about what they're eating, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. There's curiosity yeah. around that. Yeah. So do you also do AB testing with your emails? Um, we have a, I don't oversee email. We have a um, kind of a retention email marketing specialist. Um, mm. But we do, we definitely do A-B testing. Um, I'd mm. say even at like the lowest level, we do like uh, subject line testing, which helps open rates. Um, but I don't have too much visibility into like the, the A-B results of those. Yeah, yeah I understand. Perfect. So like, Jake, we are coming to the end of this uh, episode. Like I have only two questions left. One is that, so you have been in the business for more than eight years now, as you said. What are the resources? What are the, I don't know, podcasts, newsletters you like, all of in yeah. order to like, catch up with what's going on in the environment. For sure. So D2Cville, for sure, that's a good one to follow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do that. Do follow D2Cville. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd say um, the uh, perpetual traffic is a good one to, to listen to mm -hmm. as well. Okay. Um, uh, 
uh, I'm trying to get on that podcast too. I, 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 I've been a listener to that one and it's, it's great because it's, it's similar to this format where like they're bringing on professionals. Um, mm-hmm. and I enjoy, I enjoy those more where it's kind of someone who's kind of in the weeds more versus yeah. I do listen to some like by Avid, for example, or by like Warden has a really interesting business-based podcast, but yeah. they kind of keep it more general about trends in marketing versus a kind of like the more tactical things and what's actually happening in the platform. Um, but uh, yeah, and then um, I'd say probably the where I get the most information is from these it's kind of an odd answer, but it's from the actual reps on like at Google and Meta because mm. typically I'll get a presentation about a new product they're rolling out, and then after a few weeks, then there'll be you know an article about it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So if you are working on an account, like I would say, like and you have uh, like an actual rep, not like just one of those, you know, you'll get a lot of emails from Meta asking for support, not like a support person, but like their actual reps that can give yeah. you depth and stuff. Those have been helpful too. Yeah, 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 um, sure, noted. Okay, so one last question, maybe like. Uh, I saw that you were on a podcast very recently and you were talking about the future expectations for growth yeah. marketing for these three businesses. So what are some trends that you're expecting for the future for the coming years? Yeah. And I'd be, I want to ask you the same question too, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. but I would say, uh, definitely, you know, common answer, but, uh, integrating AI into the actual ad creation process, mm-hmm. um, a lot of these platforms now are basically giving you text suggestions. They're not there yet with creatives. Like they can't make image creative based on AI yet. It's, yeah. it's not, it's not there. Even their ad copy AI suggestions aren't exactly there yet. You still need to edit them to make them there to make them ready. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'd say the next year in 2024, I think you'll see those suggestions be even smarter and those mm-hmm. AI generated ad copy be even better and more tailored. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty exciting because that, that will help at least just with the ad copy velocity and, and making new ad copy. Um, secondly is, uh, like multi-touch marketing. I don't think a brand anymore can just get away. Like maybe in, you know, 2016, you could 2016, 2017, you could just run and put like a ton of budget on meta, for example. And like, that could be like, maybe your only channel now it's, it's very hard. Like if you're a big brand, yeah, exactly. Like you need to do more, like you need to be on different platforms. Um, yeah. And and generally, like beyond beyond like the main four, like beyond search, beyond Meta, beyond YouTube, beyond TikTok, you can do mm-hmm. you know a couple thousand um, a month just at, at like bare minimum on those. But mm-hmm. it really does help with a halo effect if you have multi-touch marketing, and it, it also helps just to increase general brand awareness. Where we'll probably see your brand search term volume increase by doing that. Um, and I'd say thirdly is is measurement and attribution. Um, it's come a long way, um, but I think you'll see probably like even more powerful ways to get around a lot of the, the privacy and cookie complications that are happening now in a space where, you know, the in-platform reporting is still not really there yet. I was told by, you know, a meta rep that uh, they're, they're launching a, a new, you know, click-based attribution setting soon. Mm. That could be pretty interesting mm. um, because it's right now you're kind of limited at that seven day click. I've been told that they're, they're working on the 28 day click to, which is what they yeah. had before, you know, pre iOS. Um, but I, I was told they're working on that, but yeah, I'd say like, finding a tool for attribution that could be triple whale if you're an e-commerce company for example um or that could be you know something like you know hubspot if you're if you're a lead gen based company yeah yeah sure how about you what do you think oh like i don't know if i am biased because i'm also a community builder but i would say like what you're saying mostly are like technical stuff right in that stuff but like what i'm saying the the, where the future of the two will be 
because I'm also from a community uh, background, I suggest that the future is more like community building for D2C brands because mm-hmm. now the inflation and cost of living crisis and everything, they're pressuring up people. People have less, you know, I don't know, less budget to spend on their items probably. But if you are part of a community for a certain brand or a certain company, it's like, it's not really easy for you to let go of that brand, right? So you keep investing on like their brands, like their items, their products and everything. So I would say like investing in your community building efforts would be one thing. What And what's like all of the stuff we've been talking on throughout this podcast episodes are also helping with those stuff, especially for example, newsletters, emails and everything like that. They like companies by doing that invest in the sense of community building and bringing people together over shared values. So I'll probably suggest community, like companies to do that. And other than that, I will probably go out and invest more on my social media. I mean, I know it is like, it's a no brainer. Uh, I know that everyone out there is saying the same, but invest more on your social media, keep sharing your stuff, be consistent and be consistent with your messages, be consistent with your volume of what you've been sharing. And just don't give up on that because I know for a fact that it's sort of like a long-term investment where you cannot see the immediate benefits, the day after you actually shared the content you've been planning to share, but keep investing in that. Don't, you know, don't just lay off your content team. No, just for sure. Yeah. Keep with them, you know, keep sharing, keep, you know, engaging with your audience and be very active. Don't let your social media go. And that will probably mean like more general sense sort of advice to uh, DTC brands out there. For sure. Content. Well, I think will be king for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Um, it It has been and it will be right. Yeah. And I, I really like that note too about community building because I think like, you know, if you think back, you know, seven, 10 years ago, if you were an e-commerce site, you built a blog, you know, to help yeah. with traffic. Yeah. But now you can't just build a blog to help with community. Like you mm. need a podcast. And once you do that podcast, then you can turn that those that podcast content into YouTube content and post that on Reels and TikTok. Yeah. Um, and it's been really important for like, that's kind of feel like the, you know, the 2.0 of community building now is, you can't just just have a blog. Like there needs to be more of like a almost a, a face or richer content like this where yeah, you can listen yeah. or you can watch. Um, I, I totally agree. I think like e-commerce, like I think we're seeing this too, where you're seeing like e-commerce brands. I think it was was it uh, like was it Warby Parker? Um, there was a brand that like had, of course, you know, staple e-commerce brand, but they're launching a podcast to like mm. help drive general awareness. And I've seen a lot of like you know more service-based brands do this where they'll launch a podcast to help, you know, bring in mm-hmm. new client work. But even e-commerce brands are starting to do that now. We're like, you know, they'll, I, I they'll- guess there's like, there's this brand, Obvi. They are very successful, obviously. So their founders, I guess, doing this podcast called Chiv on This. It's more go. like, yeah, it's not for uh, the general audience. It's mostly for DTC people, but they're like doing this educational podcast and it's actually contributing to their, you know, presence on social media. And like one more thing maybe is that like when your brand, especially if you're a smaller brand, uh, is associated with a person that people see as credible. Yeah. Obviously your sales go up, right? Because like I've been I've been doing this podcast for a couple months now and I see a lot of like entrepreneurs who are also investing in their personal profiles or also investing mm-hmm. in their personal social media presence. For example, there was this one lady from Germany like who had also an Instagram account for herself where she was constantly sharing stuff about um, gut health and her brand was actually kombucha tea and it was like about like kombucha tea actually helps you improve your gut health, your autoimmune system. So stuff like that. So if your brand, like if you're small, I would suggest also go and suggest, um, invest in your personal presence on social media. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Yeah. 
So yeah, uh, okay, like Jake, it was perfectly enjoyable for me to talk to you because I also I always love to talk about these issues, uh, and I'm sure that our audience will also enjoy our conversation. So thank you for being here and sharing your great insights. And for our listeners, remember to visit everytable.com to see if they're available in your region. And visit jakemadoff.io if you'd like to learn more about Jake's work. So Jake, again, thank you for being here and I wish you all the best. Yeah, it's great to be here. I had a lot of fun. (laughs)